Thanks for joining us. The following is a presentation of Ignite Global Ministries and features the teaching of Pastor Ben Dixon. Pastor Ben has a vision of strengthening the church to impact the world. He serves as lead pastor at Northwest Foursquare Church in Federal Way, Washington. Pastor Ben Dixon with Northwest Church, and this is The Daily Word. We go through books of the Bible chapter by chapter, and we are in the book of Acts. Today we're studying Acts chapter 17. So why don't you grab a Bible, get comfortable, because we're going to read through as much of the chapter as we can in the next 30 minutes. But before we do that, let's go ahead and pray together as we open God's Word. We're asking for the Holy Spirit to guide us and be our teacher. So do that with me wherever you are. Father, we thank you today for your word. And we do pray, Lord, that you would bless the reading of the word and that you would encourage our hearts. We pray, God, that you would speak to us. We pray that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit, that you would guide us. We ask for the grace to obey your word. Lord, we want to please you. We want to glorify you. And we thank you for the opportunity to come together today online and also in fellowship over your word. And so use this time for your glorious purposes. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen and amen. We've been going through the book of Acts and it's been a great study. We are in Acts chapter 17 today, but let me go ahead and just summarize what we read and also what we didn't read yesterday in Acts 16. We know that Paul and Barnabas set out on their second missionary journey. The way that they started out was at the end of Acts 15. Paul kind of bumps Barnabas and says, hey, why don't we go check on those churches that we started? And we watch how they do that. And they they end up um, going through all kinds of different issues, having opposition. We see that they end up, Paul and Silas end up in jail And not only does God move powerfully while they're in jail, but we also see that the jailer and his whole house end up getting converted to Christ. And they leave that area where they were, and they end up on the road again. Come on, there's a song that talks about that. Here we have Paul and Silas, and we also know Timothy is with them at this time. And they are on the road again. We're going to read how they enter into Thessalonica. And from Thessalonica, they go to Berea. From Berea, they go to... Athens. And so let's go ahead and read, um, I believe, the entirety of chapter 17. We'll read the entirety of chapter 17, and then I'll come back and make some comments on the different sections today and see how far that we can get. So here's what it says in Acts chapter 17 and verse 1. It says, Now when they had traveled through uh, Amphipolis, I'm not saying that right, I'm sorry. I actually knew how to say it before I came in here today. Um, Amphipolis, and Apollyon, I can't say it right. Anyways, these two cities, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. According to Paul's custom, he went to them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, saying, this Jesus whom I am proclaiming to you is the Christ. Some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas along with the large number of God-fearing Greeks and a number of the leading women. But the Jews, becoming jealous and taking along some wicked men from the marketplace, formed a mob and set the city in an uproar and attacking the house of Jason, they were seeking to bring them out to the people. When they did not find them, they began dragging Jason and some brethren before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have upset the world 
have come here also. And Jason has welcomed them, and they all act contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. They stirred up the crowd and the city authorities who heard these things, and when they had received a pledge from Jason and others, they released them. The brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. When they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews, and now these were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. Therefore, many of them believed along with a number of prominent Greek women and men. But when the Jews of Thessalonica found out that the word of God had been proclaimed by Paul and Berea also, they came there as well, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then immediately the brethren sent Paul out to go as far as the sea, and Silas and Timothy remained there. Now those who escorted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and receiving command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they left. Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was being provoked within him as he was observing the city full of idols. So he was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and God-fearing Gentiles and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be present. And also some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him. Some were saying, what would this idol babbler wish to say? Others, he seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we, now, uh, may we know what this new teaching is which you are proclaiming, for you are bringing some strange things to our ears, so we want to know what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. So they loved to do that as sort of this place of philosophy. So Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects, for while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation." that they would seek God if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, and though he is not far from each of us, for in him we live and move and exist or have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we also are his children. Being then the children of God, we ought to not think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. Therefore, because he has fixed a, uh, a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer, but others said, we shall hear you again concerning this. So Paul went out in their midst, but some men joined him and believed, whom also Dionysius, Dionysius and the Aeropagite and woman named Demarius and others with them. Just talking about people that started to follow Paul in all of his teaching. Now, when we come back to the beginning of Acts chapter 17, we realize that they had come from one region and now they're coming into Thessalonica. Thessalonica is a very interesting city. It's one of the Macedonian cities. It's the capital. In fact, 200,000 people. Clearly, we see that they did have a synagogue. They had a decent-sized Jewish 
population, very Gentile as well. But it's important for us to know this is like a, a port city. It's a commercial center. There's a trade route there. And so you have a lot of coming and a lot of going. And so, you know, Paul and Silas and Timothy wouldn't be on the radar right away. So you just got to kind of think in terms of size of city. You know, Federal Way is a hundred plus thousand people. And so it's obvious that if we were in Federal Way, it'd take a while for people in the main city area to learn if if a message was spreading throughout the city, it'd take a while for them to learn about it. And so the smaller the city, the more that the chatter is going to get to those that are higher up. And so you can imagine that it would take a while. We know Paul and his companions were in the city of Thessalonica for about three to six months. It's hard to pinpoint exactly how long they were there, but we know they weren't there for just a few weeks, even though what it says here in verse one, it says they traveled through these two cities, each were about 30 miles apart. And so here we are 60 miles away in Thessalonica. They came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And according to Paul's custom, which we've talked about, Paul would first go to the Jews and he would reason with them because obviously he's going to reason from the Old Testament. Gentiles predominantly would not know the Old Testament unless they had become a proselyte. They had converted at some point uh, to Judaism, and they also would be found in the synagogue. So he goes to the synagogue first, as was his custom, and it says for three Sabbaths, he reasoned with them. So this probably means two weeks because he started on a Sabbath, most likely, and from there it'd be, it'd be two more. So he's with them for about two weeks, reasoning with them in the synagogue, explaining and giving evidence that Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, saying, this Jesus who I'm proclaiming to you is the Christ. Now, this is really important because he's going to show them from the Old Testament that the Messiah that the Jews are waiting for had come in Jesus. But because of the way Jesus died, and of course we know he rose again, this is not something that Jewish people would have believed. They believed their Messiah was going to rise with military and political power, and so their expectation was such that they would be able to see him rise in power. They couldn't conceive of him coming like a baby in a manger, the Immaculate Conception. You know, in Judaism, they didn't have all of it right. And this is really important for us to remember. I respect rabbis who teach the Old Testament, even Messianic rabbis. I respect all of that, but sometimes I feel like there is differences. And so when, when we will say, hey, rabbi so-and-so taught this, we can clearly see from the Bible that rabbis didn't always have it right. Just because they were Jewish and they understood the traditions, they had the oral law, the Mishnah, they, they went by other um, additions to what the Bible had already said, and they built out their own doctrine and their own teaching, and that had been passed on through oral traditions, which had been written down over a period of time. They also had a prayer book that they would pray their prayers by, and so they had certain things that they would go by, and those were not always right. Some of it is historical, some of it is true, some of it we want to learn and understand. Certainly, we do not want a Western interpretation of the Old Testament. We want to make sure that we have a proper interpretation. But it's important for us to know that as Paul went from the synagogues to the synagogues in these various cities, he would try to help them understand what they had been reading their whole life. And this is an important reality is, is that I've talked to several Jewish uh, or practicing Jews, Orthodox Jews, and sometimes they'll say things that are incomplete. And so it's important that um, on, in one sense, 
we understand that as Paul's reasoning with the Jews, he once was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was a teacher of the law, but he, he had his knowledge was incomplete or insufficient. And so he's going to his people and he's trying to fill in the gaps that Jesus revealed to him. And starting with Jesus, the Messiah you've been waiting for is in Jesus the Christ. He was the Messiah. And then he had to help them understand not only that he was the Messiah, but that the Messiah from the scriptures say that he needed to suffer, he was gonna die. And then of course, we know that Jesus rose again. So he's trying to teach them all of this. And first, they need to grasp that the Messiah had come. Second, they needed to understand how the Messiah or how his plan was, uh, was supposed to go from the scriptures. Paul wanted to make sure that he used the scriptures, not just um, the story itself that we know and believe. And it says, some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas along with a large number of God-fearing Greeks and a number of the leading women. The God-fearing Greeks would be those that had converted, they had repented from their idol worship, they're not practicing paganism, and so this is what it would refer to, God-fearing. And the prominent women, we're talking about women of status, women of notoriety, those would, would be the women that we're talking about, and so they would have status among the, the men, and that's why they're noted as, as such. But the Jews, becoming jealous and taking along with them some wicked men from the marketplace, formed a mob and set the city in an uproar and attacking the house of Jason. They were seeking to bring them out to the people. And so here we have some of the Jews were jealous. Why were they jealous? They were jealous because people began to follow Paul and Silas. Jealousy is so powerful. In fact, jealousy is one of those powers that is just, it's so um, powerful in, in its negative energy and its demonic seed. It's so powerful that it, it can't just be silenced externally. It's something that a person needs God to help them deal with. I mean, if you look throughout scriptures, you see jealousy leads to murder. Um, jealousy leads to so much problems, so many issues. And here, I mean, this outflow of jealousy leading to a place of, of murder, stirring up the mob and riots. And um, it's just amazing how far jealousy can go. And the power of jealousy against us is something that we have to constantly be aware of. Now, I could park right here and just preach about jealousy. You look at the story of Joseph and his coat of many colors and how his father favored him and his brothers were going to kill him, and then they sold him into slavery as sort of a concession. That was jealousy. Their jealousy drove them to almost kill their brother, but then sell him and, and basically lie to their father and say that he had, uh, he had died out in the field. And so jealousy throughout Scripture it's very, very clear that this is an issue of the human heart that Jesus can deal with, Jesus wants to deal with. But jealousy led the Jews in this particular passage to stir up a mob and do something in order to stop the preaching of the gospel because they did not want people to follow Paul and Silas and Timothy. It says in verse 6, when they did not find them, they began dragging Jason and some brethren before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have upset the world have come here. Now, the city authorities, these Macedonian cities, they were free cities, even though Rome had colonized darn near the whole world at this point. We know that there were free cities. In other words, they were governed unto themselves. And so they usually had, you know, so political leaders that were elected, an elected body 
of the city. And so the Jews brought them before these elected officials and they said, basically lied and said, they're stirring up our area. And it was really something, uh, this was really based out of their own jealousy. And so it says, and Jason welcomed them and they all act contrary to the decrees of Caesar saying that there is another king. So they're, they're, they're trying to indict them in a way where they you know, would be punished severely if not executed. That, that's why people would always bring up these types of accusations where they're going against the decrees of Caesar. That's not true. Um, Paul's talking about the Messiah is Jesus. Certainly Jesus is a king. He's going to establish his kingdom, but they're going as extreme as possible in order to silence the message. And that's really what the enemy wants to do. The enemy wants to silence the voice of God through the people of God. Silence the gospel. And this is, again, true cancel culture. It's demonically inspired. Let's silence this. So let's lie. Let's do whatever we got to do to shut this thing down. And it says, they stirred up the crowd and the city authorities who heard these things. And when they had received a pledge from Jason and others, they released them. So they went to Jason's house. Apparently, Paul, Silas, and Timothy were probably staying there, or at least people had seen them there. We don't know who Jason was. Most scholars assume that he was a Jew because he might be mentioned at the end of the book of Romans. We're not quite sure, but what we do know is they were, they were probably seen at Jason's house. They couldn't find Paul, Silas, Timothy, so they dragged Jason as a representation of these three, and they forced Jason to make this pledge. So Jason and others have to pledge large sums of money that's held in some type of treasury. And so if anything like this happens again, if Paul and his companions continue to do what they're doing, which is based on false accusations, then these people who put up this bond, who put up this pledge would lose large sums of money. Well, Paul and Silas and Timothy hear about this, and they're not going to be the causation of these people in this city losing money. And so it says right here in verse 10, the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away to Berea in the night. And so that's what happens. They put up this bond, this pledge. It's sort of a way to guarantee that they can sort of silence what's happening regardless of whether or not the accusations are true. And Paul and Silas, they go to Berea in the middle of the night. When they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews, as was their custom, And now these men, the Bereans, were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. And this is something that you have to pause and really think about. It's a contrast from where they had been. In Thessalonica, there were people that pondered, there were people that believed, there were people that got angry and jealous, but what what we don't read about is what we see here in Berea, that there were people in the synagogues that when they heard the teaching of Paul, they were eager to study the scriptures. So in a right sense, they were open-minded. Maybe we say they were Bible open-minded. They wanted to see if what Paul and Silas were teaching was actually true. How do you do that? You go straight to the Bible. When somebody's teaching something, we have to go straight to the Bible. Is what they're saying true based on scripture? And so they studied it in detail. They studied it in context. That's what makes them noble-minded. They're Bible-minded. We don't know everything. This is a really important principle. We don't know everything. Sometimes I'll say, if God always agrees with you, then maybe you've made your mind God. 
because we're learners. The, the term disciple means learners. We're learners of the words and ways of Jesus. We are ever learning. It doesn't mean we don't know anything. It doesn't mean we haven't learned anything. It means that the depths of God's word is constantly being unfolded and revealed to us as we study what the word of God says. The Holy Spirit brings revelation. We have illumination on the scriptures that are already written, but just because we've read it doesn't mean that we know it. And just because we know it doesn't mean that we live it. And so we're constantly in a state of revelation where the Holy Spirit is making known to us what the word of God actually says. And so we want to be like the Bereans. We want to be noble-minded. We don't want to be know-it-alls. We want to be noble-minded, which means we are daily learners of the words and the ways of Jesus. Why? So that we can know God, so that we can make him known. And so this being noble-minded has got to be our quest. It's got to be a goal that we have when we read about the Bereans. We've got to say, this is how I want to be. This is who we ought to be. I want to be a person who is able to listen, a person that is willing to study, and a person that is giving it all over to God, because ultimately we need the Holy Spirit to reveal the words that are written so that we can understand what the truth is. And that's exactly what they do. They had this eagerness to study. I love that. We want to press in for an eagerness to study and be noble-minded like the Bereans. And so they're searching the scriptures to see if what Paul is saying is true. Therefore, many of them believed As a result of their study, they believed many prominent Greek women and men as well. But when the Jews of Thessalonica came over to Berea, it's amazing because they're following, they're seeking, they're searching after Paul and Silas. Where did those guys go? We want to make sure that we stop them for good. We don't just want to stop them in our city. We want to stop them, period. And so they go over to Berea and they found out the word of God had been proclaimed by Paul and Berea also. They came there as well, agitating, stirring up the crowds. Immediately, the brethren sent Paul out to go as far as the sea. And there was about 16 miles away, the coast was. And Silas and Timothy remained there. So Silas and Timothy remained in Berea. Paul got out of there because he's the primary teacher. And so now those who escorted Paul brought him as far as Athens. Probably Paul got into a boat. It was about 250 miles to walk to Athens from the coast. So that seems unlikely. It would have been three to four days in a boat. So probably went to the coast, got into a boat, three to four days boat ride, and he comes to what we call Athens. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was being provoked. So Paul's in a place where he's resting. He has sent for Silas and Timothy to come and join him. And as he's resting, guess what? He gets no rest. Why? Because in Athens, many scholars report that there were over 30,000 statues. And these, this didn't include what was in people's homes. I mean, who could know the statues and the false gods of, of wood, clay, and and bronze and silver that were up in everyone's home. Nobody knows that, but there were 30,000 public shrines and statues in Athens. So as Paul's waiting or resting, he gets no rest. His spirit within him is being provoked because the city was full of idols. So he starts to do what he always does. He's re- You can't stop this guy. Come on. We should just call Paul unstoppable. The gospel is uncontainable. So he begins to reason in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles in the marketplace every day with those who happen to be present. Athens is a big city. Paul's got his work cut out for him. 
Also, some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him. Some were saying, what would this idle babbler wish to say? Others, he seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. So they're just sort of perplexed. They're confused. They're kind of interested. Athens is a place of philosophy. It was pretty normal to have these areas where philosophers would talk all day, exchanging ideas, who has the better ideas. You'll see this also in Corinth and other places. These were places of debate. They were places of philosophy where the exchange of ideas was quite normal. And so the philosophers that were more well-known were those that could kind of speak in an eloquent way. That's why when Paul wrote to the Corinthians, he would say, I did not come to you with eloquence of speech, but with demonstration of the Spirit's power. What Paul was trying to say is, is that, you know, what I'm talking about cannot rest on men's wisdom, but it must be through the demonstration of the Spirit's power. In other words, there's got to be power and authority attached to words. It cannot just be words. It cannot just be philosophy. There is something greater than that. And so what he's telling the Corinthians, a church that has experienced the demonstration of the Spirit's power. And so Paul is talking with those who are just used to talk, 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 talk. And that's what he's trying to, to show them and, and tell them. He's talking about the power of the resurrection. And it took, uh, they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you were proclaiming. So in the Areopagus, there are these um, ruling body of elders that were also elected. Um, history tells us there's six of them and they're elected at different times. And so basically these men bring them before those people and uh, this would be sort of the convening spot where the best ideas were exchanged, the highest level of philosophy was brought. For you are bringing some strange things to our ears, and we want to know what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and strangers visiting, visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. They loved it. They were addicted to talk and speech and philosophy and debate. They loved that. This doesn't mean that people loved the believing truth or ascribing and aligning themselves with what is actually true. It doesn't mean people had the quest for truth. It means that they love to hear new ideas. They love debate. They love speech. That's not the same thing as being on a quest for truth. Maybe some of them were. We don't know. I wasn't there. But it seems to me that when you read historical accounts of Athens and other places like Corinth, that this was very normal. This is what they loved. And it was really about who could win the debate. So Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. So he's trying to talk to them on their terms. He's trying to help um, speak to them in a way where he can reach their hearts and help them understand. They're not coming from that Jewish perspective, so Paul's not going to appeal to them that way. So he says, I see that you're very religious. For while I was passing through and examining the object, objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. Therefore, you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. And, and Paul is making a presentation that you guys are used to worshiping in ignorance things that you don't understand, and you're okay with that. You're okay with, with this God and that God and who can know. And it's sort of that agnostic plea, like, yes, there's something out there, but who can know? And these philosophies started to be introduced where here's what you can know. And there's still mystery about what you can't know. And so Paul is going to cut right through that and say, this you can know for the Bible says so. 
The God who made the world and all the things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. This could be highly offensive. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life, breath, and all things. He made, he made from one man every nation of mankind to live in all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they would seek God if perhaps they might grope for him, find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, we are also his children. Being then the children of God, we ought to not think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art or thought of man. In other words, God is above anything we can fashion or understand. He's greater than all of this that their culture is full of. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent because he has fixed the day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. You notice how he's not appealing them at all through the Jewish mindset. He's not appealing to them through the Old Testament, but the truths of the Old Testament, the purpose, the truths, the these teachings, he's just giving them sort of the, the, the main aspects that they could possibly understand. He had a way of being able to talk to the audience that was in front of them, front of him, and so important. So Paul went out, we, he, this is what they say, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer, others said, we shall hear you again concerning this. So Paul went out of their midst, but some men joined him and believed, and they went along with him. In Acts 17, what we see is Paul goes to Thessalonica, he gets opposed, he goes to Berea, he gets opposed, he goes to Athens. One thing we learn from Paul in all of this is that Paul was on mission and he did not stop. Opposition did not stop Paul. I love that about Paul. It's how I want to be. Number one, we can anticipate that if we're really going to share, and this isn't just share in the church, we've got to stop thinking that all of our ministry is just in the church. We should have a dual ministry. We want to encourage the body of Christ to be strong and to grow in Christ. But we also all, in some way, not in the same way, but in some way, we have a ministry in the marketplace, not just the gathering place of the Lord, but the marketplace of the world. And Paul, as an apostle, as a teacher, he wanted to make Christ known. And so he pleaded with the Jews and then he pleaded with the Gentiles. It didn't matter who he was talking to. He would talk to anybody as long as he could talk about Jesus. This did not make him an evangelist per se, but it did mean that he evangelized. He just sought to make Jesus known. And opposition was not a sign that God was not going to do something great. What's amazing is even though there was opposition, there was sneering, there was rejection, people wanted to hurt or harm him. Obviously, they wanted him out of their cities. But here, one thing we see is that he's sharing with this Gentile people in Athens, they sneer, some, and then others believed. Others followed him. I think this is really powerful, and we've got to consider that our message, as we share the love of God in Christ Jesus, as we share about the cross and the resurrection, we've got to realize that we're going to have all kinds of responses. The church of Jesus is the light of the world, but sometimes when people see the light, they do this. They don't, they, they just automatically, they're not drawn to it right away. They're drawn away from it. Some people, when they see the light, they're drawn to it. Oh, wow. What is this light? And so it's important for us to recognize that we're going to endure a lot of things and we just accept that, but we have to accept our responsibility to share just like Paul. And we see that the gospel 
cannot be stopped. We see that people who make a decision that they're part of the mission of Jesus, they cannot be stopped unless they allow themselves to be stopped. So as the church, we're in this together. Each one of us has a role. Each one of us has a part. In no way, shape, or form do I want to make anybody that's listening to me or watching me think that we all need to be Paul or we all need to be Ben or we need to be anybody. We need to be who we are. We need to take the gifts that God has given us, the knowledge that we have, the skills that we have, whatever's in our heart, whatever's in our hands, and we need to give that away for the sake of the gospel. And as we do that, God will make it fruitful. As we're faithful, God will make us fruitful because it's all for him and for his glory. And we see through this second missionary journey and the travels of Paul, we're going to keep seeing this as we keep following him along as he's trying to make Jesus known to people that have yet to know him. He first goes to the Jews and then to the Gentiles. We're going to see some of these similarities. They keep coming up, right? I mean, I'm preaching to you the same thing. I'm not preaching a sermon. We're just reading from the Bible and whatever it says is what it says. If it says the same thing three times in a row, that's what we're going to get. So I do feel like I'm repeating the same message that I've shared before, but it's because that's what happens as we follow Paul in all of his journeys, as well as his companions. And so here's what I want to pray today. I just want to pray and continue to pray that as we embrace the mission of God in our lives as the church of Jesus Christ in 2020, going into 2021, that you and I would be people that embrace all that comes with that. And we would not be discouraged. We would not be disappointed, but we would move forward. And I want to pray that God gives us divine appointments, that today and this week, that we would meet people that God has appointed for us to meet, and we would share with them without reservation. And so let's pray into that today as we close our time in the daily word. Father, we thank you today for your word. We thank you that it's clear. And as we follow Paul and his companions along their journey, as they share the gospel, they open first to the Jews, the Gentiles. They seek to share it in a way that makes sense, but they keep the clarity and the truth of the word intact. We pray, God, that you would help us to embrace your mission further and that no matter what happens, that we would not veer to the right or left, but we simply accept what you're doing and what you call us to do and be a part of. And Lord, we love you. And we want to follow you no matter what. I pray, God, over everybody that's listening and watching that you would give us divine appointments, open doors, that we would walk through those doors, that we would share truth, that no matter how much we're able to share, whether it's a minute or it's an hour, that we would be faithful to share. We thank you for those divine appointments and those opportunities in advance. Help us, Lord, to be faithful. Fill us with your Holy Spirit in advance that we might be useful in your hands for your glory. In Jesus' mighty name, amen and amen. Thanks for listening. If you'd like more information about Ignite Global Ministries, please go to our website, igniteglobalministries.org. While there, check out our Immersion Discipleship School and the books Pastor Ben has written.